Okay, don't be afraid. The book of Revelation is not designed to scare you. It's designed to give you hope. It's all about hope. It's all about discipleship. But most importantly, it is all about Jesus Christ. So we are so excited to offer these sermons on the book of Revelation. We hope you enjoy them. Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. Father, as we are just walking through this letter of Revelation, we are reminded week after week of how good and awesome and glorious and unimaginable and indescribable and personal and intimate you are with us. We are reminded of who Jesus is and we're reminded of who we are, of who we could become, of who we might become. So Father, we pray that as we finish up these letters to these churches, that we hear the words of your Son clearly, that the Holy Spirit would be present with us in our worship and in the reading and the hearing of your word, that we can figure out what these words written 2,000 years ago mean for us today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right, so if you've been tracking with us for the past few weeks through the series on Revelation, you have heard me say over and over that the way we're choosing to read Revelation is literal, but that means that we're reading it according to the type of literature that it is, which means that we're going to read these images and colors and numbers as symbols. You should be used to me saying that by now. If you're not caught up, if you haven't heard me say that before, you need to get online. There's about four sermons that you need to get caught up on, all right? It's going to start to pile up, so get to work. We've been hearing, this is apocalyptic literature. It's a type of literature that uses symbolic language to describe the things that have happened, that are happening, and things that are yet to come. And we've talked about how easy it is to get lost in the fantastic imagery. There's a lot of amazing images. But one thing that we have to be really cautious of as we move forward, we have to be careful that our decision to read Revelation symbolically doesn't lead us to think that there's no history in this, or that the events that are being described are like mythology. These aren't mythological events. This is real. Revelation is rooted in history. Oftentimes it's describing, using symbols, very specific events that happened 2,000 years ago, just after the time of Jesus in the first century. Now some of these symbols also point forward to things that are still to be uncovered. But what these letters to the seven churches help to do is they help to ground us in history as we prepare for everything that is to come. So as we've looked through these letters last week, uh, we looked quickly at the churches in Smyrna and Laodicea, and we saw that the letter to the church in Smyrna had no correction, no condemnation. They got nothing but well done from Jesus. And then we saw by comparison that the church in Laodicea was the only letter of the seven who didn't hear well done. There was no affirmation, only correction. We saw that the church in Laodicea, the reason that they had no affirmation is because they had conflicted allegiances. They had come to convince themselves 
that they could at the same time live the Roman way and the Jesus way. They had come to believe that Monday through Saturday they could function in the Roman world with all of its idolatry and immorality as long as they returned back for church services on Sunday. For that church, Jesus had become the Lord of Sunday only, rather than the Lord who was raised to life on Sunday so that he could be Lord over every moment and every aspect of every day. And because they had those conflicted allegiances, Jesus called them lukewarm. And he tells them to repent. But if they don't, they will by default completely reject him. That's all important. The letter to Laodicea is important for us today. But it's important not just because of its warnings or its promises. It's important simply because it exists. I mentioned this in passing last week. He didn't have to send a letter to Laodicea at all. There were plenty of other churches in the area. Less than 20 miles away was the Colossian church that Paul writes an entire letter to that we have in the New Testament today. There was another really important church in an important city called Heropolis. That church was started by the Apostle Peter, one of the original 12 disciples. He was laid to rest there along with his four daughters after they were crucified for not renouncing their faith in Jesus. The church in Heropolis was founded by one of the twelve. It was a church that had status. It'd be around for a while. A couple hundred years later, it sent delegates to the church councils in Nicaea and in Ephesus. That's all interesting. But to me, this is the most interesting part. The last two letters, Philadelphia, Laodicea. To get from Philadelphia to Laodicea, guess what city you had to pass through first? You had to go through Heropolis. And instead of leaving that church a letter, writing a letter to that important, influential church in a city that you're literally passing through along the way, Jesus decides to write his letter to Laodicea anyway. A church that had effectively stopped being a church. Why would he do that? Because he loved them. And he wanted them back. We need to remember that Jesus chose to chase after a church that was running away from him. Like a friend said this week, like Ryan just sang, he literally left the 99 to chase after the one again. So here's the point. Before we get into the letter this week, the point, there is always hope, y'all. No matter how far we've fallen, no matter how difficult these messages might be for us, we are always offered the opportunity to repent and to return to Jesus, to reject the world rather than continue to reject Jesus. And if we do, if we hear that and obey that, if we trust him, we will be his church, we'll be his bride, and we'll be by his side forever. I think there's hope in that. You think there's hope in that? Is that hopeful? Good. Because it's all downhill from here. So, partially kidding. Uh, Today, we're going to hear Jesus' words uh, to the church in Sardis. It is another tough message. Uh, But let's read it and then see what kind of warnings and comfort it might have to offer us 2,000 years later. So, this is from Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6. Jesus tells John to write, To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. 
wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I'll come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one whose victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So if you remember from last week, we talked about the fact that Jesus knows these churches. He's among them, present in the midst of the lampstands, chapter 1 tells us. He knows where they are. He knows the history of their cities. He knows the situation and the circumstances that they live in. But he also knows them, not superficially, intimately. I know your works. I know your deeds. I know where you are, but I also know who you are. And what Jesus knows about the church in Sardis, apparently that was news to them. He tells them, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. You see, what seemed like a thriving community of faith from a human perspective looked like something very different from Jesus' perspective. The church might be active and alive, but that doesn't mean it's a church. Remember, apocalyptic literature, it intends to uncover hidden truths, things about reality and about ourselves that we may not realize, things that we may not understand yet. It takes situations rooted in history and describes them in fantastic ways to wake us up to what's really happening around us. And to wake them up, he makes this strong statement, you are dead. The church itself was dead, even though there were some individuals who were repentant and obedient to Jesus among them. Now look, the letter could have ended there. You're dead. It's too late. There is no hope. We have to remember this is the same Jesus who's revealed to us in chapter 1 and we find out that he's the one that holds the keys of death. That there is nothing that he can't overcome. Life was restored to Jesus' crucified and dead body. That means that there's hope that life can be restored into what little remains. Even into a church that thinks it's alive, but, but it's not. So the death language is strong. Maybe a more practical way to think about Jesus' words to Sardis is to think of a church that's fallen to sleep. Oftentimes in scripture, being dead and being asleep are synonymous. So one author says this. He says, they lost that heightened sense of being awake and watchful. They had become complacent. I think that happens. It's part of our nature. Sometimes you mean to drive to school and you end up at work. We get comfortable We get satisfied with our day. Maybe we get a little lazy over time. We just go through the motions. This happens in our careers, in our daily life, in our relationships. Sadly, it happens in our marriages, in our homes. So Jesus says to them, I know your deeds, and I have found them unfinished in the sight of my God. You got started, but you fell asleep. You got bored. You gave up. 
You never finished the job that I gave you to do in the first place. So I understand that really well. Um, A while ago, it would always take some new thing to get me excited and energized about my work. I was just always easily distracted by the next new idea. I still have notebooks full of ideas and projects and ministries, things that I never followed through with, things that were never completed. Some of them I never even took the time to start. There's an energy and an excitement that can be found in new things and new ideas. Chasing a new idea can really make you feel alive. You might feel alive, but you've accomplished nothing. You see, as I've grown, I have learned to find joy and satisfaction in working to see things through to completion. I shared with an earlier service that uh, when I was interviewing with the PNC uh, to be called uh, to come serve here, uh, many of those members knew me before and they knew that about me. And one of the sweet members of the team uh, started to refer to me as Chad (laughs) 2.0. Something's changed. Because it's not my nature. It's not my nature to follow through and see things to completion. That's the Holy Spirit transforming me over time. And Jesus is telling the church in Sardis, you might feel alive. You might feel successful because you're so busy. But the truth is, you're just jumping from one thing to the next. You don't have the perseverance or the patience to see it through to the end. And because you're actually not even doing the job that I gave you to do in the first place, you're practicing an incomplete faith. So what weren't they doing? What hadn't they completed? Uh, One author says this about Sardis. He says, for all their beehive of spiritual activity, for their great programming, they weren't doing the one thing they were commanded to do. And all this is the one thing we've been talking about here for the past year. Sharing the gospel and making disciples. They were active, but they were incomplete. They had become satisfied in adding numbers to their roles, but they weren't focused on making disciples of Jesus. You see, unlike the church in Smyrna that we read about last week, the church in Sardis faced no persecution. They weren't facing any pressure from the community around them because they weren't raising their voice. They weren't causing any trouble for individual sinners or for the culture around them. They were too bland to be worth persecuting. So there's a name for this kind of a faith. We call it nominal Christianity. Nominal, by definition, means existing in name only. And I know that in our time there are political uses of that language, but for the church it really does identify people who might say the name of Jesus but they're really Christian in name only. Jesus says this in Matthew 7. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Y'all, we aren't defined by our ability to say Jesus' name the right way. We're defined by our love for God and for others, by the evidence in our lives of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The church is defined by the disciples that she makes. We are not guaranteed a place by Jesus' side simply because we've declared his name over and over. Christianity is not magic. Salvation is not about a ritual. It's truly a way of life. So what we learn is that Sardis was, was the model of an inoffensive Christianity, one that challenged nobody, 
It didn't provoke the sinner or the culture around it. They were practicing a faith that didn't call people to repentance or to a radical allegiance to Jesus over everything else. They were practicing a faith that preached, that preached cheap grace rather than the transforming power of salvation in the name of Jesus. By definition, that's not Christianity. It's Christianity in name only. A friend of mine who pastors a church in town, he was telling me about somebody that he was counseling. Uh, they were talking about the man's faith. And as they did, my friend began to notice something in the way the man spoke. When he spoke about reading scripture or prayer or worship, showing up in church, giving, he always framed it as something I know I'm supposed to do. I know I'm supposed to get up every day and pray. I know I'm supposed to read scripture. I know I'm supposed to be in church on Sunday. And my friend began to understand that this man's faith was just religion. It was bound to duty. It was obligation. It wasn't love. It was not a relationship. So he asked him, he said, you've done these things, but when's the last time you wanted to be with Jesus? When's the last time you read scripture because you desired his presence? When the, when's the last time you prayed because you longed for his presence with you? Is praying and reading and worshiping and serving causing you to fall more in love with Jesus? Or are they just activities and you're just checking off the boxes? He asked him that and things got really quiet. He wasn't falling in love. He was just checking boxes, going through the motions, Christian in name only. And friends, there is no Christianity apart from a loving relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. There is no religion that will save us. There's no duties we can perform that'll fix what's broken within us. Our only hope is not in our activity, but in Jesus's name, in Jesus himself. And a loving relationship with Jesus will then lead us to acts of love and service. To bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit everywhere we go. Jesus knows you intimately. And he loves you deeply. But do we truly desire to know him in return? So listen, I want you all to understand that we read this letter, it's a difficult letter. I am not implying, I'm not implying that our church is like Sardis. I actually don't think we're like Sardis at all. We will always have our issues, but I really do believe that we right now are wide awake and that we are focused on him. So then why read you this letter? Because I think the warning is important. If we can listen to the warning and if we can trust Jesus and what he tells us to do next, that will protect us from waking up one day and realizing that like Sardis, we had fallen asleep and we are no longer the church. Jesus' letter to Sardis is meant to be an alarm, an alarm to sleepy or sleeping churches. And in his mercy, he doesn't condemn and he doesn't threaten. He simply provides a way forward. And he does so by giving five commands. He says, wake up. Like Beth said, pay attention. A really effective translation of this is keep on being watchful. The Greek has these verbs that never end. They just go on and on and on. Keep on watching. 
And there's actually some history to this phrase, the city of Sardis and its Acropolis, it was built on a mountain on the side of a cliff that seemed to provide so much protection that it was impenetrable. That city thought that it was invincible. But twice in its history, it was attacked. In 549 BC, Cyrus sent one man up the face of the cliff to climb over the wall and open the gates from the inside. He conquered the city. About 350 years later, Antiochus the Great did the same thing, but he was a little bolder. He sent 15 men. They had become comfortable, complacent. They were convinced that they were safe from attack. And twice they were conquered. And to that church in that city, Jesus says, wake up. Keep on watching. Then he tells them to strengthen what remains. He says, you have some people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white because they're worthy. Turn to those people. You know who they are among you. They will help you find your way again. When you're struggling, when the church has lost its way, look to those among you who are faithful and true. Listen to them. Let them guide you back. Now, these are often the voices of our older members, but they're truly voices of all ages. They're even voices of our children and our students. Anywhere that voice is calling us back to Jesus, that's the voice of a reformer. Somebody who knows and loves Jesus and is asking us to fall in love with him again too. So we need to pay attention to those people. We'll notice them by the fruit of the Spirit in their lives, by their faithfulness. Trust them and follow, and we'll find him again. He tells us to remember. Remember is the most commonly used verb in all of the Old Testament. And it's used over 120 times in the New Testament. And again, more literally, because of the way the Greek grammar works, a better way to translate it is keep on remembering. Don't forget. Do you know why we repeat the Lord's Prayer from time to time? And why we recite the Apostles' Creed? In traditional service, we do these things every week. Do you know why we take communion monthly like we will today? Why we typically baptize in the context of a worship service? Why we hear that same old gospel preached week after week? It's so that we can keep on remembering and not forget. The reality is we are coming into this place each week from different places. Some of us are coming in disturbed, uncomfortable. Some of us are coming in doubting. We're wondering where God is in the midst of all the mess around us. And we return week after week to get together to remind one another of who God is. That even in the mess that we see every day, that he is faithful and true, that we can trust him, we can count on him, and in our obedience to him, we will truly find salvation. He says to keep it, to keep what you know, and keep on keeping it. Keep running, keep working, keep on keeping on. I grew up in a tradition that told me that faith in Jesus was really about one moment, a moment in time. When were you saved? What's that story? Those moments are important. But faith in Jesus' discipleship is not a moment in time that passes and is forgotten. It's a daily exercise. It's waking up every day for me and asking myself, who's in charge today? Chad? The Holy Spirit? Jennifer? <laughs> Benjamin? Anna? Paul in Ephesians 5, he says, keep on being filled by the Holy Spirit. 
claim that transformed life that Jesus promises. Don't just settle for a one-time emotion that can easily be forgotten. And then finally he says, repent. Turn around. Change your mind. Change your direction. That's what repentance means in the Bible. The biblical image of repentance is not spilling your guts to a holy person. It's not telling on yourself to your neighbors. It's simply agreeing with God that he's right and you're wrong. That's what the word confession means. It means to agree with. So agree with God. And then turn away from that wayward path and that wayward thinking. Turn toward him day by day. A life of repentance is a life that's constantly seeking his will, his plan, his purpose for our lives, and measuring everything else that comes in this life against that good and perfect will. So he doesn't condemn, he doesn't write them off, he tells them exactly what to do. Wake up, strengthen what remains, remember, keep it, and repent. And here maybe is the most important part. When does he say to do this? He says, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know when I'm coming. Do it now. You don't know when those climbers might be climbing the face of that mountain. It'll be a surprise. You're not expecting it, so don't delay in returning to Jesus. Revelation tells us one of the sobering and really frightening truths of Revelation is that there is an end. History is not just the cycle that's going to keep on going. There is a final act to this play. And one day, that opportunity to repent and return to Jesus, it will be gone. That's a sobering truth. We're going to find that as we continue through Revelation. But it's not there to frighten you. It's there to encourage you. Don't wait. Don't wait. He's here right now. I want to leave you uh, just quickly with three questions. Uh, Daryl Johnson, he wrote this book on Revelation that is one of the first books I read that really transformed my understanding of the book, uh, my faith, to be honest with you. Um, And he says that there are three questions that this letter to the church in Sardis poses to us today. The first one, ask yourself, What place does Jesus occupy in my life? That's the question. Not, the question is not how often do you pray or how often do you read scripture or how many times do you go to church every month? The question is, what place does Jesus occupy in my life? The king of kings sits on the throne of creation. He is subject to nothing. So what place does Jesus occupy in my life? And the truth is, any answer other than first place is wrong. And it's a sign that we are adopting a Christianity in name only. The second question he asks, if Jesus were to take away his spirit, would you notice? Would it make any difference? Another way this question has been framed, if Jesus were to remove our church from this neighborhood, if tomorrow our neighbors woke up and we were no longer here, Would they notice? Would they care? Would their lives be better off or worse off if we weren't here? A church that can go missing without being noticed is practicing an inoffensive, bland faith that's not worth persecuting. That's a church that needs to wake up. For someone who is alive in Christ, even the thought 
of Jesus removing his spirit, removing that lampstand, that would bring the fear of death. That would be devastating. If Jesus were to take away his spirit, would we notice? And would we care? And the final question, when is the last time I shared my love for Jesus with someone else? Who am I discipling? I've often joked that for a time, I thought that maybe I had converted more people to using Mac products than to following Jesus. (laughs) I've told more people about Star Wars (laughs) than the story of Jesus Christ. When's the last time that we have told somebody about our love for Jesus and who are we discipling? One author says this, he says, any belief shorn from the confidence to live it publicly is not a belief, but a posture. And postures are easily overwhelmed. Christianity in name only is a posture. True Christianity claims a saving faith in the Lord who holds the seven stars, who owns the keys of death, the one who kneels by our side and lifts us up in the midst of our pain and our suffering. True Christianity is a real faith grounded in a personal loving relationship with Jesus in the midst of a community of Jesus followers that matters every moment of every day, no matter where we are. Now listen, I want you to hear this. Before, before I finish, I want you to hear this. We are not Sardis. And I mean that. I'm not saying this to hint that we are. But I do think this letter is so helpful because it gives us instructions on how to make sure we don't fall asleep. And it gives us some really helpful questions that we can ask ourselves every day that'll help us measure if we're on the right track. Just because we're not Sardis doesn't mean that we can't become Sardis. So Revelation reminds us, stay awake, keep watch, remember, obey, continue to repent and call on the name of Jesus. And then it says this, to those who are victorious, when you show up at my house, Jesus says to us, when you show up at my gates, not only will I recognize you, Not only will I know exactly who you are, not only will I run to you in an embrace, I will carry you to introduce you to my Father. And you will be with us forever. Y'all, there is nothing in this world that can compare to a promise like that. That is the good news that Revelation preaches to us every time we read it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this good news. Um, We're aware that it's good news in the midst of some challenging words, though. So be present with us. Father, for those of us who maybe we're noticing that we're nodding off a little bit, that we're getting a little comfortable, that maybe it has become a bit of a routine, Help us to find that first love like you tell the church in Ephesians. Help us to wake up like you tell the church in Sardis. Help us to remember who you are and who you say we are. Help us to be the people you called us to be. Father, we love you. Continue to inspire within us 
not just the words, we love you, but the deep connection to you, the desire to be with you, to know you more and more each and every day. We pray that our relationship with you would not grow cold, that we would not get bored, that we would chase after you as a response to the truth that you have already chased us down. And thank you for your grace and mercy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at www.fpc-kingwood.org. Our services are available on our website and find us on Instagram at fpc underscore kingwood. We'll see you next time.